first of all, thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you, Linda, and thank you for the Society for Research into Higher Education. I'm really pleased to be here. Um, this, the, practically the work I'm going to present today is uh, draws from uh, a work conducted by um, an MSc uh, student I, I supervised a couple of years ago, Jun Huang. Uh, she was brilliant because she opened my eyes to a completely different uh, uh, world. Um, I, as you were saying, you know, I'm very much interested in uh, social inequalities and social justice within higher education. She was very much interested to see how um, uh, Chinese students uh, are doing within uh, our UK uh, higher education sector and I was very pleased to work with her and, and to um, then um, write together an article for, um, out of this work. Um, I have to acknowledge that this work has been also funded by the University of Edinburgh Data Library and the Morehouse School of Education. Uh, uh, you may know that uh, to have access to the higher education um, agency um, data, statistics uh, data, um, you actually have to pay. So uh, I'm pleased that uh, you know, the university has actually invested some of this money to, to fund our research. Um, I would like just to give you a brief outline of what they are covering today in my presentation. Uh, first of all, I would like to give you a bit of background to the study, so how the study is located within the wider literature of the internationalization of higher education. Then I would like to introduce the, our main research questions and also the factors we have more specifically analyzed within this wider um, project. Um, then. I'll speak about the changes in the Chinese higher education system because uh, uh, what we discovered when we were ana analyzing the data is that a lot of those trends have to be explained and have to be understood in light of what is happening also in China. Um, and then I'll speak briefly about the uh, higher education statistics agency data that we used for the work. Um, then uh, I'll present the results. Uh, the empirical results of this work which uh, focus on trends in patterns of participation attainment. I'll try to summarize the main findings and what the implications from these main findings are for higher education policy and practice. So, as I said, this work is located within the wider literature on internationalization of higher education. We know um, that the internationalization of higher education has become a worldwide phenomenon. And just to give you some figure, according to the UNESCO estimates, uh, there are around 3.6 um, million students studying abroad. Uh, according to the British Council, these numbers will grow. Uh, they may reach 7 million in uh, 2020. According to the Higher Education Statistic Agency data, uh, about 425,000 international students are enrolled in UK higher education institutions. And the number of Chinese students, especially Chinese overseas students, studying in UK has increased dramatically from 4,000 in 1998-1999 to about 84,000 in 2012-2013. So this shows you the, 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 this, how the expansion has happened quite quickly, I have to say, and, 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 and they clearly the forecasts are towards a continuing expansion. Also, I'll give you another data, datum. Um, the contribution of international students to the UK economy is large. According to the Department for Business, Innovation and Skills, um, 
they contribute around 20 billion uh, pounds in 2011, 2000, uh, 20, 20, sorry, 2011 and 2012. So you can understand there is uh, clearly um, uh, a lot of interest uh, in maintaining, uh, I have to say, this flow of international students, but there are also a lot of challenges. So uh, we will speak about this uh, uh, during my presentation. Um, first of all, um, the, the internationalization <coughs> of higher education has been promoted and supported by national governments for different policy reasons. And the OECD has, uh, um, I think, very helpfully identified at least four of them. One is to promote mutual understanding. What does it mean? Uh, practically, countries want to promote a change, cultural changes. Um, because in this way, manage, uh, we, we, we improve our understanding of different cultures. And one example of this is the Erasmus, you know, the European program of mobility of students across Europe. And of course, this, um, um, the promotion of a mutual understanding also strengthens uh, political and economic <coughs> ties across the different countries. So as clearly uh, clear benefits for, for different countries. The other um, policy reason why national gov government support uh, the, the mobility of students is uh, to support skilled migration. So in this case, government want to attract high able students, highly skilled um, young people who may um, um, remain in the host country and contribute to the economy of the host country. The other um, uh, policy reason is the increase, uh, to increase revenue generation for higher education institutions. Um, in this case, practically what the government uh, tries to do is to um, um, bring the funding to the higher education, the national higher education system through um, uh, the adoption of higher fees for international students. And of course, the goal is to uh, attract uh, a very large number of students uh, so that uh, there will be more revenues practically out of it, so there will be more economic benefits out of it. And the other um, um, policy reason why uh, national government tend to support uh, student mobility is to foster capacity building. Um, and in this case, uh, while the, first, the previous uh, two points, support skilled migration and increased revenue generation for higher education institutions, uh, clearly focus on the receiving countries, uh, this final point, this final policy reason to foster capacity building is focusing more on the sending countries. So in this case, the sending countries try to encourage their students to go abroad to get the skills they need to, uh, to, um, to bring back uh, home. So to have a more um, well-educated uh, workforce by promoting this migration and of course, um, then uh, the return back to the uh, home country. Now, I would suggest that the UK has, uh, in regard only to, I would say, non-EU students, because with the, the UK is also involved in the programs like the Erasmus progress, program, uh, but in relation to uh, non-EU students, has adopted a, a revenue generation kind of policy. Um, uh, no, our higher education institutions are becoming more and more dependent uh, from the funding and the, and the fees that our international students are paying. Um, China is instead uh, clearly adopting a, a policy of capacity building. 
um, China, has, and I'm going to tell you, has, has clearly expanded the higher education system at home, but cannot really provide uh, to all the uh, people who want to study in higher education um, um, in, uh, places for everybody. So uh, they actually foster um, the, the, um, and promote um, the, the student mobility and, um, and so send practically students abroad. Now, our study, so against this background, our study um, um, aimed at studying changes in Chinese uh, overseas students' demand for higher education and also in their academic outcomes within the UK. And we addressed uh, two specific research questions. First of all, given the expansion, as this large increase in the numbers of Chinese overseas students in UK higher education institutions, brought about changes in patterns of participation of Chinese students. So comparing, let's say, students who came here 10 years ago, would we say that they are studying the same subject, they are going to the same institution, or what has changed? That was the, 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 our, our uh, question. Um, the, the second question is, have, have levels of first degree attainment among Chinese overseas students changed over time? So what the first question is looking at patterns of participation. The second question focused more on the attainment of students. And we focus, of course, on, on first degree students. Um, and to what extent do they differ from attainment levels of British students or other international students? We, in particular, um, focus on two uh, aspects in regard to uh, pattern, patterns of participation. One is the types of institutions entered. So, uh, as I said before, uh, are they uh, going to the same, are they spreading, if you want, uh, in, they come and uh, attend whatever type of universities or actually they are mostly attending a particular type of institution uh, instead of others. And also what kind of study they engage in. So what kind of subject do they choose? And with regard to attainment, we analyzed the attainment, of, as I said, of first degree. Um, so first class, upper second class, lower second class, third class, or unclassified. And we also grouped the first class and upper second class um, because we ran some uh, uh, modeling of the data. So we want to have a, um, an outcome which would tell us whether what were the chances of Chinese students to achieve a good degree compared to the other groups, other international students or UK students. Now, as I said, you know, before uh, starting to present the data, um, I would like to say something about the change in higher education in China. There is no doubt that this expansion of Chinese students coming to the UK, but also going to other countries, has to be read, has to be interpreted on, uh, based on what is happening also in China. And in China, there has been an extensive expansion of uh, the higher education system. What is, it for me, incredible is that they, in 1999, the Chinese government had a target of 15% of young people aged 18, 21, enrolling in higher education by 2020, and they reached the target three years later. <laughs> so it's uh, incredible because uh, uh, being, having the ability or the capacity to uh, expand so dramatically in, in such a short time is, I think, uh, is really startling. So in 2002, this target was already reached. 
But at, at the same time, when there was a, um, the, the expansion was planned, there's been also increase in institutional differentiation within the higher education system in China. So uh, um, the Chinese government decided to um, fund um, uh, much more certain universities to raise their profile, to give them uh, more funding for research. And so these two projects, Project 211 and Project 995, um, practically these two projects, some universities were identified as well as some disciplines that they had priority um, and they got practically much more funding than the rest of the higher education system. Um, I, I believe that this kind of process has also, um, um, can also explain why as, um, Chinese students coming to the UK are more likely nowadays to go to Russian group of universities uh, than they were in the past. I think there is a, almost an awareness of different uh, of a hierarchy within the institution at home, in some ways also abroad now. Um, despite this change, so these are say, some changes, uh, important changes, there is also um, some stability because despite the uh, recruitment into higher education continue, sorry, to, uh, um, sorry, despite this expansion, recruitment into higher education continues to be very selective. Uh, there are much more people who want to get into higher education than actually people who manage to get into higher education in China. Um, this is based, uh, this selectivity is based on the national higher education entrance examination. So only the top students, the students who clearly um, achieve the highest uh, mark um, uh, in this examination can access uh, um, higher education in China. But another important element of the um, Chinese education system is the choice of subject secondary level affect in some ways also the, the um, 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 the range of courses you can uh, take at university level. So uh, Jun Huang was explaining to me that uh, teachers tend to push students to take more science subjects because widen up their opportunity afterwards in, uh, in higher education. So and, and just to give you an example, the ratio of arts and science courses offering university in China is around three to seven. So this means there will be clearly much more students uh, in China who uh, um, have achieved um, or have taken examination in science and who will use that uh, credential also when they go abroad. So they will probably more likely choose a, a kind of science subjects in, uh, um, in abroad. Um, now, I try to summarize some of what I think are the most important factors, push factors, in the decision of studying abroad of Chinese students. We already saw that there is a clearly, uh, despite the expansion of higher education, there is still a, a high competition to enter higher education institution at home. So uh, this clearly leads uh, people to look for other opportunities <coughs> to enter higher education abroad. And uh, research has also suggested, the other research has suggested that uh, there is also an increase in this satisfaction of Chinese students with the, the unprecedented crowded environment of the Chinese higher education system. Clearly, the expansion in three years must have happened with an increase of students within, let's say, the classroom, and within the courses. So they sadly uh, have a much larger um, um, uh, students uh, taught by, by um, um, lecturer at the university, but also 
uh, some students are, have also complained that uh, um, the quality of curriculum, the teaching methods are not as advanced or up to date as the one in the Western um, societies. Um, there is also high labor market competition among graduates. There is no doubt that there are more graduates in the labor market and there is much more competition uh, in China to get uh, graduate jobs. Clearly going abroad may be uh, something which distinguishes you from the other graduates and so this also a push, a post potential push factor. Um, there is a, the availability of uh, economic resources among Chinese families uh, to invest in their children's education. Well, China, uh, Chinese family have become wealthier over time, but also um, the one-child policy has clearly led many families to have more uh, financial uh, uh, resources at disposition to invest in, in one child only. Um, and then there is also, which I, I think is very important, especially for the UK, the growing availability <coughs> of foundation courses, access courses, which are provided by foreign universities <coughs> and which open up access, direct access to foreign university. For example, uh, I can give you the example of the Northern Consortium UK, which is composed of 11 universities offering these courses, which then open up access to um, university in the UK. So all these factors, I think, can uh, explain, uh, contribute to explain why China is now the country which sends the largest number of students abroad. And English-speaking countries, especially UK, US, Australia, and Canada, are, uh, have become their favorite destination. Now, going back to our study. Um, in our study, we used the Higher Education Statistics Agency data for three cohorts of graduates, of Chinese graduates. Um, we combined two cohorts um, <coughs> at the beginning of the time uh, period here, so the 1999-2000-2001, simply because the numbers were actually quite small <laughs> at that point, so we could combine them and to have a, a better um, um, a sample size. Um, and then we analyzed graduates from the year 2005 and 2009. The variable we used in our analysis um, are gender, age, mode and level of study, the institution they gra graduated from, the subject of graduation, also the source of fees, of tuition fees, the first degree attainment, and the highest qualification on entry. Here I give you some uh, overall figure. Um, the, there has been an increase of students from 6,000 students at the beginning of the time period analyzed here, which is in 1998 to 2001, to 20,000 graduates in, uh, to, uh, in uh, uh, 2008 to 2009. But as you can see from this graph, most of the growth uh, has happened in the master level, so the most popular clearly um, 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 program attended by Chinese students are master program. Um, the doctorate program has remained uh, quite constant actually, that we don't find uh, a, a huge increase in that, uh, but uh, we have clear increase also among the first uh, um, degree uh, graduates. So, so here we see from 1998 to 2004, the, this proportion has tripled practically. So um, it's, uh, um, the, the, the largest increase has happened among the first degree graduates. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. 
Um, then we looked at the different characteristics of Chinese students across time. And we found that in more recent times, Chinese students coming to the UK are more likely to be younger. They are many women, more than in the past. Uh, they are self-funded, so they are funded by their families. And uh, interesting, there are more and more people holding an A-level or higher before entering uh, first degree programs. So these are the headlines, I'll give you now the data. So if we look at the age of Chinese students, we found that most of the first degree graduates were aged, and are aged still now, around 21, 24 years old. But this percentage has grown over time. So in the, if we look at the three time point, it went from 69% to 86%. So again, uh, they are younger. Um, at master level, 42% uh, of the master graduates were 20, 30 years and over in 1998-2001. But this percentage has clearly dramatically decreased to 8% only, uh, while 51% of master graduates um, were aged 25, 29 years old in the last time point. Uh, among PhD graduates, a similar phenomenon. We had uh, at the beginning of our time series, 85% of the doctors were 30 years and over, uh, and 8% of them were 25, 29 years old. The corresponding data in the last time points, the 2008, 2009, were 51% and 49% respectively. If we look at gender, <coughs> we find that, uh, um, well, first of all, more women clearly enter master programs than men, and this is true over the time period. Um, but the opposite is true for PhD studies. So there are more men, more Chinese men, entering um, uh, doctorate programs than women. There is much more balanced situation for the first degree, but overall, there is a clear increase in the share of women um, entering first degree uh, <coughs> programs over time, from the 1998 to the 2008-2009. If we look at change in Chinese student characteristics, so I will look more specifically at funding and entry qualification, we find that the total percentage of self-funded Chinese students grew and uh, grew at both postgraduate and undergraduate level. So increased from 74% to 82% over the last 10 years. Um, the smallest percentage of self-sponsored students are among the PhD students. Uh, only about 40% um, uh, are self-sponsored, but 80%, even 90% are self-funded among master students and first degree students. So we see that the percentages are clearly very much high. So these are all people who are funding their studies. Um, the data on entry qualification are limited, unfortunately, and actually I would love uh, to uh, support a better uh, collection of data in relation to entry qualification. But one interesting datum from the HISA data is that the Chinese uh, students who um, enter first degree programs are more likely nowadays to have, to hold an A-level, uh, A-levels or hires, and this percentage has doubled from 10% to 20%. And this has uh, some positive consequences I'll show you when we look at attainment. Now, Focusing then on uh, um, trends in participation, and as I said, I looked at two. We looked at two factors. One was the institution type, 
entered and then also the subject, the field of study. Um, in relation to the institution type, now in general most Chinese first degree students graduate from post-92 universities and this is true over the time period. However, this percentage is declining, so uh, now there are more and more students entering the Russell Group universities and the pre-92 universities. <coughs> when we look at master students, uh, about 40% of master students graduated from a Russell Group university. And this, over time, there is no much change that. The change you can find among the master students is the more and more people, more and more master students enter uh, the pre-92 universities. And the Russell Group University consistently gathered the largest percentage of, of PhD Chinese students. Um, I'll show you in a second the data here. So the, the, the lower um, percentages here are um, representing the Russell Group um, uh, institution. And you can see among the first degree graduates, a very small percentage before was entering uh, the Russell Group University, I would say probably around 6 or 7 percent here, but it grew to something like 22 percent over time. So there is no doubt that the choice nowadays seems to be in favor of going for the prestigious university or research intensive university also at undergraduate level. For the master level, as I say, there is no much happening in terms of uh, proportion of percentages attending the Russell Group University, but there has been a clear increase in the choice of, of pre-92 universities for this, uh, this group of students. Um, and among the doctorate, as I already said, most of them uh, really enter the research intensive university, Russell Group universities, and this percentage seems to have grown as well um, over time. Um, in relation to field of study, the situation is mixed in the sense that you don't find that uh, there are always the same field of study chosen, even though business will be always mm. at the top of their choices. Uh, so at the beginning of the 21st century, uh, the subjects uh, um, entered by undergraduate Chinese students were most likely to enter were business and engineering. But over time, business, but also science, has grown in popularity, while engineering has attracted less of fewer Chinese undergraduate students. At master level, business and social science were the most popular subject, and this is true over the 10 years analyzed. And engineering and science instead attract the majority of Chinese PhD students, uh, uh, but slightly less in more recent times. One important thing, in my opinion, is the growth in the percentage of graduates in the social science at both undergraduate and PhD level. My explanation is we have more women, more Chinese women coming, so this is their, their favorite choice. It's more unlikely that men choose social science, but because there is a clearly a growing proportion of women coming to um, the UK to study in higher education, they, they, social science is one of the, their preferred choices. Here are the data, as you can see. The percentage of people entering business at undergraduate level is uh, very, very high, and it grew over time. And the same for uh, science, of course, it's much smaller percentage, but it's the all, these are the only fields where we could find a clear increase in the percentage of people graduating from these subjects. And social studies is the second, uh, I would say, no, sorry, it's the third most popular choice after engineering. But engineering clearly has uh, uh, lost a bit of popularity compared to the early cohort. 
Uh, at master level, once again, we have the big <laughs> columns here for, for business, so the, the uh, great majority of students enter um, business, uh, but followed by social study, which uh, has maintained a quite um, good proportion of Chinese students into the field. Um, and there is, a, again, a slight uh, not, uh, increase in the proportion of people entering science subjects also at master level. Um, at PhD level, um, we have engineering, as I said, but again, declining popularity of this field, um, while uh, the social study uh, subject have clearly increased in popularity, but also business at PhD level has increased in popularity. Now, going to the other uh, group of results related to trends in attainment uh, of Chinese first degree graduates, I have to say uh, we were quite uh, um, surprised to find out that uh, in general a Chinese students tend to um, um, have lower attainment compared also to other international students and I'll, I'll show you in a second. In general, Chinese students tend to um, obtain a lower second class or uh, as a, uh, following uh, an upper second uh, class degree. Uh, what is worrying for me uh, is that there has been an increase in the percentage of Chinese students who achieved only a third class degree over time. Uh, so in some ways a kind of a deteriorating actually uh, trend. Um, but if we look at uh, first class degree and second and the upper second class degree together, so as uh, the, uh, look at the chances the Chinese students have to obtain a good degree, um, then we found that they always have a lower chances of obtaining a good, good degree if compared um, with UK, but not just UK, it would be uh, fine if it was just UK, but also all the other international students. So here are the data for attainment. Um, there is a slight increase in the, in the percentage of people um, uh, achieving a first class degree. Uh, this is a good news, but the bad news is we want is that actually this increase is present uh, for everybody. So if you look at UK <coughs> students or also other foreign students, there has been overall over time an increase uh, in people, in the percentage of people um, achieving a first class degree. What, as I said, is worrying is the decline in the percentage of people who achieve a lower second class and an increase in uh, Chinese students at, um, achieving only a third class degree. And here is the direct comparison between the Chinese <coughs> students and the other uh, students. Uh, um, I'm presenting odds ratios, so you need to read the odds ratios. If uh, the odds ratios are below one, this means that Chinese students have uh, an uh, attainment which is lower than, than the other groups. And as you can see, this is true for all uh, lines here. So they are always uh, more less likely to, um, to obtain a good degree compared to UK, other non-EU students, EU students, and other Asian students. And over time, you don't see any improvement. Actually, if you concentrate on, uh, for example, the line which compares China, Chinese students, and UK students, you find that um, um, Chinese students had only something like 37% of the probabilities of obtaining a good degree compared to the UK students. This percentage seems to increase a bit in the second time point, but then declines again. Um, so. Clearly, the big question is uh, why? Why the attainment has not improved actually? It could be that it has deteriorated over time. 
and this, as I said, is true also when we compare them with uh, um, other Asian students, and uh, over time also they always uh, um, achieved less well than, for example, um, uh, EU or non-EU students. Um, we also want to, to see who achieved the highest among the Chinese students. So we run a logistic regression when we compare the odds of gaining a good degree versus the other types of degree. Uh, and the results show that the most successful Chinese students were female. Um, they went to the Russell Group universities and the pre-1992 universities. But what's interesting, held A-level hires, qualification prior to enter higher education in the, the UK. And uh, in most recent points, when graduates were compared, graduates from different disciplines were compared, we found that graduates from computer science, engineering, social science, humanities, and science actually all perform better than people who graduate from business. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, just trying to wrap up now all the, the, the results and trying to, um, to draw some conclusion and some uh, uh, possible implication. Um, first of all, I've, I've just presented the, the, the number of changes which have accompanied the participation of Chinese students in the UK. The first thing, the first big change has been the student numbers as we have seen the expansion has been dramatic. Um, of course, my question is, uh, were the UK higher education institution ready to actually accept uh, uh, such large number of mm -hmm. students? Um, it, I think uh, there, will, there are challenges, uh, challenges lead to the kind of curriculum, the kind of pedagogy that we, uh, uh, and assessment practice that we uh, use in our universities. I don't think uh, that we can, and this is not just for Chinese students, but more general, generally for international students, we can welcome students without actually changing the system as well, because once you inter uh, we, we become more international, we need to rethink about our, our way of teaching and our way and the curriculum itself. Um, then uh, there's been change clearly in uh, um, student composition. Interesting, the new ways of Chinese students are probably, because they are younger, they are probably more likely to require strong pastoral support and also strong academic guidance. Um, in relation to <coughs> patterns of participation, we also saw um, that there's been change in, in where they go and what they study. So we need to understand, to understand those change, I think we need to understand much better what the situation of higher education and also labor market in China is. And the worrying outcome, in my opinion, is the stability in Chinese students' low attainment. So the main question is, why are they, are they not doing as well as they probably could do? Um, it's a question of language barriers only, um, or uh, dif difficult ab adaptation to the UK higher education system. Um, there is no doubt for me, it's interesting to see the Chinese students who studied for A-levels and higher are doing better. This tells us something, that clearly they are much better prepared to uh, familiar, uh, they have familiarized with the UK higher education system, uh, at least education system in general, so in secondary and the higher education system. So I was wondering whether we could do more in terms of, of uh, um, pre-arrival induction programs, so that students know 
what they are signed up to, <laughs> because it could be that it, it requires a long time for a, for for students, Chinese students, to um, to adapt to the new uh, environment and the new way of learning and and, and teaching. I'm also want I want to be um, also uh, um, I would like to challenge also another point: Is it possible that the, the new wave of Chinese students are actually less prepared than they were in the past. Um, maybe, um, again, because I couldn't look at entry qualifications apart from the A-level. Um, so I wonder, what kind of qualification do they have? Um, is maybe there is a more, um, to say, a growing mismatch between uh, their quali prior qualification and what they apply for. It would be great if we could have some data on that, because we could actually um, look more in details about uh, issues of this kind. Uh, so clearly for me it's very important to monitor, to continue monitoring participation of Chinese students uh, because this would allow university to capture the changing expectations of Chinese students and also to be responsive to this change. As I said, it's very good that we welcome a large number of Chinese students, but we need also to know what their needs are to be able to, to, to um, support their learning. So the ability to understand international students' current and also predictive feature is key, especially for policymakers who want to uh, continue to support the UK higher education system um, in playing a leading role, role sorry, a leading role uh, internationally. Um, the international uh, higher education um, um, area is becoming more and more competitive and there is no doubt if you want to, um, to provide um, international student with a very good experience and go back and say only positive things about our UK uh, higher education system, then clearly we need to, to, to be more prepared to know more about the actual demand that these students um, um, are uh, uh, their demands and their needs in general. I think this is it. Yeah, <laughs> just a few references at the end. <laughs>